0: Cutting-edge conversations with the quant community. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Ristonet. This is Quantcast number three. I'm Mauro Cesar, RiskQuant finance editor, speaking from our London office. Our special guest today is Fabio Mercurio of Bloomberg. Fabio, thank you very much for joining us today, especially given the circumstances. I know you just landed in Tokyo two hours ago uh, after a 14-hour flight from New York ran straight to the office to find quite a space to connect with us. So, well, still, this was the best time we could find for this recording. So I really appreciate you making the time in your diary for this. How are you today? Oh, it's great. Thank you. My pleasure. So it's great to be here and uh, have this opportunity to to make this interview. Excellent. So, well, you hardly need an introduction, but I'm going to give our audience a quick one anyway. So Fabio is based in New York City, where the global head of quantity analytics at Bloomberg and adjunct professor at New York University. At Bloomberg, with his team, he is responsible for the research on cross-asset analytics for derivatives pricing, XVA, credit, market risk, which sounds like everything under the sun, really. Um, does your team work on solutions on the buy-side industry as well?
1: Um, possibly. I mean, like, a good thing about Bloomberg is that we um, cover everything and uh, so our customers go from you know sell side to buy side from uh, financial
0: institutions to corporations so you name it so that, that that's great so buy side as well yes so Fabio has been very well known in the financial community for um, a number of publications but especially his first important one uh, a book with Damiano Brigo on uh, on interest rates it's called interest rate models theory and practice uh which has become a reference uh, a reference publication in the field uh but most of all I should unbiasedly say uh for his 17 papers published in risk magazine over the years uh which is a, a great number uh, do you actually remember the first paper you published with risk oh that's a good question <laughs> I, I i'm not sure i remember that i think
1: it was about like um, some log um, uh, lognormal mixture uh, model we did Yes, I think it was about that. So it was like about some uh, local ball dynamics based on the uh, mixture distribution. But actually, the very first paper that Amir and I published was um, a rebuttal. So there were two, um, um, uh, two people that claimed essentially in a paper that was published in this magazine that the whole financial industry uh, didn't understand anything, basically. So everything was wrong. So um, they derived some uh, kind of master equation that should be followed by prices of risk factors and blah blah blah. And but unfortunately, they made you know um, some conceptual mistake and also mistake in derivation of some formula. And we pointed that out, and essentially our correction was published. I think it was uh, uh, the very first publication we had the Risk magazine was in
0: uh, '99, I think. Oh, wow. that's a. Uh... That's a long career with risk. I've actually always wondered how uh, quants in fl- uh, client-facing roles like yourself uh, manage to be prolific authors as well. So you know, you, you're you're facing clients as you are doing now in in Tokyo, um, as well as you know, um, dedicating time to research. So how much of your time can you dedicate to model development?
1: Ah, that's uh, look, I. Um as you were saying before, you know, like, I'm uh, I'm the global head of Quant analytics in Bloomberg, so my team is um, uh, made of 40-plus people, so, uh, you know, um, most of my time is actually spent, like, in really managing people and uh, discussing ideas with uh, peers and also reviewing the work, so um, I'm not doing any direct development work myself. And uh, uh, I'm very lucky because, you know, like, I uh, really have uh, some of the top and best um, uh, quant in industry, and uh, we hire some of them directly from banks, uh, so they're very experienced, very skilled, and um, uh, they do a great job implementing the models that uh, we're working on. So, in a sense, I mean, they, you know, they they do all uh, the um, the hard groundwork uh, for me, and uh you know, I, uh, I'm i lucky because I can then uh, take all the fun of traveling, for example. As you said, I'm here in Tokyo. and uh, But not only that, it's not just traveling for the fun of it. It's traveling because we want to promote our functionality. And, uh, and so um, that's an essential part of my, my job as well. When it comes to research, um, you know, like uh, I'm no different than any other, like, uh, quant in the industry, uh, meaning that research uh, can be done, but unfortunately it has to be relegated to your uh, spare time or to the late hours, um, you know, in the office. And uh, also, you know, traveling helps because, you know, you have time on the plane uh, to write down something, uh, to, um, to, you know, uh, put together your ideas and uh, uh, to do some um, nice research work. So that that's, uh, um, that's what I do. I mean, but uh, unfortunately, I mean, research per se is not really a major component of my work. I would say maybe 20%.
0: Some of your colleagues also publish in RISC or elsewhere as well. So yeah, the old team I, I have a feeling is uh very dedicated to quantitative research.
1: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I think it's like uh, uh people like uh Matt Harvey Stein have been uh, uh contributing articles to um uh, to this magazine and uh, personally I encourage everyone uh to write and um and I- and they do that. I mean, like uh, but some people have more, uh, say, have a better interest uh, of doing that. Other people maybe, you know, focus more on uh, on the actual work and the actual implementation work. Um, I think it's important to, to have both because, uh, especially at Bloomberg, we want also to be thought leaders and we want to uh, show our customers that we have the right skills to, uh, to develop, you know, the right analytics uh, because, we uh, not only, I mean, uh, try to mimic what um, the industry is doing, but also because we have our proprietary solutions that are proved to be successful.
0: Of course. Um, well, the occasion today for this chat is uh, the publication of your latest paper, The Present of Futures. In this paper, you introduce a multi-core framework for pricing convexity adjustments in futures contracts. Could you tell us what the importance of modeling those adjustments is, and briefly how you model? How your model does it?
1: Okay, uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. So th- this is uh, my latest publication in Magazine. I'm really happy that you know I made it. Uh, I'm also emotionally attached to this paper because I've been working on it for the last three years. I started actually writing a more general paper about multicut modeling. And uh, used futures pricing as a particular example. then I realized that there it, it was more to it, and I thought maybe I should really focus on um, on uh, this particular example, you know, as and uh, and write uh, an dedicated paper to that. And so this is what I did. So I think um, so multiple pricing of uh, futures and corresponding of adjustments is really important because. Um, um, Eurodollar futures are interest rate derivatives, and we know that after the flash crisis 2007-8, um, all interest rate derivatives have been priced using this uh, multi-curve paradigm. And uh, so we know that you are using uh, different curves for uh, projecting the future LIBORs and uh, different curves for discounting future coupon payments depending on the cross-realization schemes you have. So it is clear that there is separation between uh, uh, these two processes, so the way you generate future libels and the way you, you discount um, um, future coupon payments. And uh, if we acknowledge that, um, this same logic should be applied for the pricing of futures as well, uh, because those are uh, interest rate derivatives. And this is what I'm doing in, my, in this paper. and. Uh, Instead of applying some, uh, say, um, simpler uh, Gaussian-based interest rate model, um, because this was already done, essentially, I'm doing something more advanced and uh, more realistic. Um, I, uh, I built a multi model where LIBORs are uh, modeled according to shift processes and uh, OS rates uh, evolve according to some uh, general SHIAT model. And the reason for doing that is because I really want to study the impact of Cap Smiles in the evaluation of futures. And also because I want to introduce a new concept that for me is very, very important, which is the concept of uh, minimal based volatility modeling. Um, I, I don't know if you want me to expand on that, but I'd be very, very happy to do that if you want.
0: Uh, yes, please. Uh, could you could you explain the concept itself? Uh, maybe, maybe in simple terms. We cannot obviously go into mathematical details in, in this space.
1: Sure. So um, so one of the key uh, components, especially when you price um, uh, euro-dollar futures and uh, the, their corresponding correction adjustments, is to uh, allow for a correlation between uh, LIBOR and OES curves that is not equal to one. So you uh, don't necessarily want, want to model a perfect correlation between LIBOR and OES because uh, historically, we know that the correlation hasn't been always equal to one, and uh, we know that convex adjustments are roughly proportional to that correlation. So uh, the higher the correlation, the higher the adjustment. So you don't want to overestimate the adjustment, and then you want to uh, allow for um, uh, a LIBOR-OAS correlation that is uh, smaller than one. If you do that, uh, as a direct consequence, the uh, the basis between LIBOR and OAS cannot be deterministic because the deterministic basis implies a perfect correlation, and, uh, and therefore if the basis cannot be deterministic, the basis is stochastic. If the basis is stochastic, we need to be very careful because, you know, the basis in principle can go, uh, you know, uh, can be all over the place, and you can easily uh, end up generating unrealistic scenarios for the basis, meaning unrealistic gener- scenarios for the LIBOR OAS pair. So my solution to that is to um, um, minimize the volatility of this basis so that I can limit the occurrence of unrealistic anal- uh, uh, interest rate uh, scenarios in the future just because I uh, minimize the volatility. And I repeat, this is exactly what needs to be done because, we want to assume that the correlation between uh, LIBOR and OIS is more than one. And this is, uh, you know, uh, something different than what is typically done in the industry when pricing general interest rate derivatives because the typical assumption is that um, the basis is is deterministic. But I think that that assumption here in in the pricing of futures is not the correct one you need to allow for correlations more than one and hence you need to allow for stochastic basis but you need to be careful because you don't want the base to be too stochastic and that's why you want to uh, minimize its volatility so that's in a nutshell what i've done in this paper and by uh, you know building a consistent framework where uh, the basis has minimal volatility
0: i see thank you uh well just to um just to say about the paper uh, is going to be published in the march issue of risk so you find it online and in print uh, very soon talking about libor it is natural to ask you about the reform of the benchmark rate um, so libor may be replaced after 2021 and uh, this will be consequently uh, affecting all libor based contracts and uh, what, uh, what are called uh, legacy contracts uh, whose notional amount to hundreds of trillion dollars. Uh, so my question would be, what do you expect to happen in 2022? Uh, what are the possible scenarios that you see?
1: Oh, Maury, this is a great question. This is actually my favorite topic at the moment. And uh, look, uh, I can tell you I, more than what I expect to happen, I can tell you what has already happened. And uh, um, uh, let's focus on uh, usd LIBOR, uh, just as an example, just, first of all, because I'm based in, uh, in New York City. And so uh, what we know is that um, um, there is a committee um, called Alternative Reference Rate Committee, so ARRC, and that already decided that LIBOR will be replaced by new rate called SOFR, where SOFR stands for Secured Overnight Funding Rate. So that has been decided already, and a similar decisions has been made for, um, uh, say, uh, UK LIBOR. Um, so the reason why uh, this committee chose um, uh, a Secured Overnight Funding Rate, um, like SOFR, is because we uh, want a rate that is uh, secured, so it's uh, essentially um, backed by uh, some collateral, uh, should be transparent enough, uh, should be liquid, should be um, a reflection of actual transactions. So in a nutshell, should be a rate that is almost impossible to manipulate. Of course, I mean, uh, not is impossible, but uh, that's rational. So we want something that is absolutely transparent. um, um, That can be... uh, uh, replicated, easy to understand, and uh, very liquid, and uh, not so prone to manipulation. Um, so that's um, regarding uh, LIBOR replacement, but uh, there is a caveat. So LIBOR is typically at three-month or six-month rate, and but SOFR is an overnight index, an overnight rate. So we need to decide how to go from that overnight index to uh, an effective, three month or six month index. So this hasn't been decided yet. Even though um, I would say that, you know, people are leaning towards a definition that is forward-looking, meaning that it's based on a daily compounding of the, um, say, software rate for the desired um, um, time period. So let's say that you want to set like a three month um, um, library placement based on the software, what you will be doing, you will be calculating um, uh, daily fixings of software. It will be compounding for the next three months. At the end of the period, you will publish the rate as a, as alternative to LIBOR. So, um, uh, so that uh, hasn't been decided yet, but that's very likely to happen. Um, I have more um, um, more questions. I mean, m- more things that actually are uncertain. And I think they're very, uh, you know, uh, important to discuss. So, for example, um, one important uh, thing that um, uh, we don't know yet is whether uh, software will replace completely LIBOR or whether LIBOR will to continue to exist in some form. So my personal, um, uh, so, um, say, um, understanding and maybe bet is that LIBOR will Continue to exist, maybe not the way uh, it is, you know, defined now. Maybe in some other form, because uh, I think you know there is a need in the, uh, for for um, a rate which is uh, um, an expression of the average, say, um, um, offering rate of the banking industry. There is a need for that. So I don't know whether that rate would be totally uh you know uh replaced by something else so i think that you know that kind of libor rate may continue to exist but uh, at the same time may not be as transparent as liquid as the current as the current one and another question is regarding uh, the actual regulators so essentially, re- regulators may step in and say you know what we don't want libor to to be uh the main rate anymore uh, because we know it was, you know, uh, um, rigged before. It is, uh, you know, prone to manipulation. We want everybody to uh, to move to software. So we uh, we will enforce that move. For example, by um, uh, deciding higher capital charges for uh, library-based derivatives. That's a possibility, but hasn't been decided yet. So another questions, uh, other question that actually. Um, is also very interesting, is regarding the market that will um, be, um, let's say, uh, developed around software. So uh, I can imagine that, you know, uh, we, soon have, we will have soon enough um, software-based swaps, then possibly caps for swaptions. So the whole market that was essentially library-based will be also software-based. And possibly we'll, we'll have two parallel markets one of uh, labor-based derivatives, the other one of on, uh, software based derivatives, which means that we will need to, uh, to build, like, uh, consistent models for, uh, you know, uh, making sure that we calibrate the two markets simultaneously. That would be a very, very challenging, but also, you know, a lot of fun for quants like myself uh, that are, you know, um, still uh, passionate about interest rate modeling.
0: So it sounds like you expect Libor-based um, contracts to continue to be denominated in, in Libor, or, or do you expect legacy contracts to uh, be some uh, change reference and uh, and go into a software envi- software environment?
1: So it it is very hard to say, right? So it's uh, essentially um, um, uh, this is pure speculation. So. Um, uh, I think it's going to be very hard but it's just my personal opinion clearly it's going to be very hard to um to complete a transaction for all libor based derivatives into some equivalent software-based derivative right so i'm not talking just about swaps i'm talking about for example about uh semester options, right so uh bermuda swaps what are we going to do about those right so that's going to be very, very challenging. So uh, I think it's going to be very, very hard to um, convert lib- all existing library based derivatives into equivalent software-based ones. So that's, uh, But that's just my opinion. And uh, little by little, what I can see is that the new contract will be based on a new index. But what about the legacy contract? The legacy contract will still exist and little by little, I think you know, uh, um, um, kind of parties will decide to migrate to the new to the new index, uh, but that will take time, and it will not be an easy an easy task, even from a modeling
0: point of view. Back to your model, so I suppose from what you say that uh, it will be applicable after 2022 because you, uh, you are saying that you expect library to, to linger around for a little longer. Uh, will it be applicable to a software environment? Is there any connection there? Yeah, I mean, I think,
1: um, so we are expecting uh, software-based swaps to be, uh, you know, uh, quoted already this year, right? So the, the market for uh, software-based swaps um, can start pretty soon. Actually, uh, CME will launch um uh, software futures we you know which is the first uh, uh signal and sign that uh you know the markets will uh, move in this direction uh then, okay so the first thing you wanna do uh is futures trading then uh, then swaps then caps floors then swaps then bermuda swaps, then anything else so um uh, so this is gonna happen. Uh I don't know exactly when, but this is gonna happen. And uh and uh um, so the question is also when uh, you know the legacy contract, as I said before, will be moved uh to the new one. And uh, um so there are proposals, uh but it's gonna be very, very, very challenging and uh I'm not sure that everybody in the market is actually welcoming those changes because also operationally uh, that the will be very, very problematic. As a quant, I must say, uh, I'm very excited about it uh, because um, I can see um, two different types of interest rate, say, markets emerging and living uh, in parallel possibly for a few years. And uh, so this will create a need of more sophisticated models and because if you want to... Um, Uh, transition and uh, move from one uh, contract to another one you definitely need to have like uh, uh, corresponding pricing models that accommodate all available market data and also give you the right value and the right uh, exposures uh, for um, all these different contracts So I'm pretty excited about it
0: a more general question that I'd like to ask to our guests is uh, what are the areas of finance of quant finance that you see in greatest need of innovation and new solutions. Where should quant focus?
1: Well, that's also another great question. So it's so we know that the financial industry changed a lot in the, in the recent years, and uh, so uh, corresponding research changed as well. Um, so um, um, I would say that in the good old times, a lot of research was actually. Uh, focused on uh, developing, uh, say, more sophisticated models for pricing, uh, more complex uh, interest rate uh, products and, uh, say, uh, equity products or uh, hybrid products. Uh, But now um, the focus changed, and uh, I'll mention, like, a few areas where I think um, there is a need for um, uh, for more research, and banks already, like uh, you know, spend a lot in these areas. So one is uh, um, uh, capital optimization. So we know that you know um, um, regulators are imposing a lot of like uh, um, uh, capital uh, charges, in, uh, especially on uh, um, on, uh, on derivatives. So it's really important to to try to understand how to optimize capital, and uh, um, for example, to understand the trade-off between uh, uh, cost of capital and cost of funding where you uh, move contracts to a cleaning house, for example. Uh, another interesting area of research is the collateral management. Um, collateral is getting like more and more important nowadays. It's everywhere and, um, and actually uh, there are different types of collateral and different currencies and uh, different bonds and things like that. So, it's really important to understand what's the cheapest and the best to deliver collateral uh, um, at every point in time. So uh, a lot of people are doing that uh, statically. Also at Bloomberg, we we, we do have like a um, uh, collateral management tool that does that. So essentially based on uh, like uh, your current inventory, you decide what's the cheapest collateral to deliver. But a very interesting like problem to address is to, uh, to see what's the cheapest collateral to the river now based also on the uh, uh, transactions you are expected to have in the future. So this is like a big uh, complex optimization problem that is very, very hard to solve, very challenging. Um, I also want to mention model risk management. We know that moderate risk management is very growing, uh, it's a growing area in, uh, in banks. Uh, it's very important to like, uh, um, assess model risk because you know uh, uh, models are used everywhere, so regulators are uh, very keen to understand that models are used properly and uh, um, the difference between different models is assessed properly. And also, we'll say that a new um, FRTB rules are kind of reducing uh, the uh, uh, the discrepancy be, between different models. Are trying to force banks to um, uh, to use very similar models for pricing and uh, risk management purposes um i would i would mention also another um, uh growing area of research uh, in banks which uh is uh, fraud detection and it, the reason why, why i mention that is because that's really um, um something that uh banks are uh investing on uh, a lot at the moment and uh, and rightfully so and and as a quote, i must say that i'm very excited about that because um, uh, the good news is that uh, the modern techniques in fraud detection are actually extremely sophisticated and are the cool ones. You use a lot of machine learning, for example, so it is really great. So it's not just you know the use of machine learning that you know as a, as, a, uh, as a as as a buzzword. Uh, it's really machine learning because you are using a lot of data and it's, uh, you need to uh, identify a lot of complex rules uh, between a lot of different transactions. So uh, this is really um, a, a very interesting area where you can um, uh, where you can um, adopt and, uh, and use uh, very cool and um, fancy um, modern techniques, especially those that are uh, extremely um, fashionable at the moment, like machine learning. Uh, of course, I didn't mention Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and blockchain. I should mention that, especially because. Uh, already, Bitcoin futures have been, uh, uh, you know, have emerged and started to uh, be um, uh, clear by CME. I think another avenue of research and uh, and uh, um, fun for quant will be uh, the price evaluation of Bitcoin derivatives. And uh, um, let's see.
0: When you said, uh, and it's very interesting that you said fraud detection, uh, were you referring just to the retail sector or uh, more broadly to financial crimes in banking?
1: Financial crimes, yes, financial crimes, yes. So that's a very big issue. We know that uh, some banks uh, got fined and the fines are pretty, pretty big. So uh, it makes sense for them to um, uh, invest a lot of money, not only because this, you know, avoids uh, paying fees, but fines, because but also because there is a reputational cost. So uh, for, for banks, it's very, very hard to, um, you know, to detect crimes. But as I said, like, uh, you know, uh, given current modern techniques, especially machine learning techniques, and uh, using big data, uh we can definitely come up with something that help the industry um minimizing the risk of financial crimes
0: so i suppose the biggest biggest example there is uh, money laundering
1: uh for sure but well, not only that yes
0: uh, a more general uh, question, actually, the same question, just the opposite. Um, so why has actually been investigated too much? Where do you think the industry has uh, wasted a little time and maybe it wasn't worth it?
1: Well, uh, you, you know, the, uh, my background is uh, uh, exotic um pricing quant, right? So it's <laughs> so that that's an easy answer. I mean, like uh, for, unfortunately, I think uh, we spend maybe too much time trying to price yet another cabin in you knowing uh, yet another exotic uh, um, uh, derivative, and uh, um, you know, unfortunately, I would say not all the efforts were made to um, to structures deals that were actually uh, necessary for the community. Some of uh, some of those uh, exotic options were toxic, we know that and uh, um, now they disappeared. And uh, I must say that there is a reason for that so we sh- we can't be too sorry for this, but in a sense, as a quant, I'm kind of sorry because it was very fun. It was a, it was a lot of fun, actually, building uh, increasingly sophisticated pricing models for, uh, for valuing them. But as I said before, uh, there are many other areas which can give us, you know, um, some um, challenges and uh, where um, we can have, you know, fun applying sophisticated uh, mathematical modeling techniques. So uh, no regret. About the past and just focus on what's fun at the moment and what's challenging
0: right so what's fun at the moment what are your future research products
1: Oh yes um, uh, so you know working for a vendor and um, we try to focus on uh, on research which is directly applicable to the product we are building and we spend a lot of time trying to uh, develop uh, dealer quality uh, products on the uh, XCA and uh, uh, risk space. So uh, my future research will say uh, mostly focus on uh, say new valuation adjustments or like new twists of valuation adjustments uh, jointly with uh, care, and also um, um, work closely with Harvey Stein um, um, who is also uh, working my team uh, to um, Improve the uh, the quality of our uh, risk analytics, especially when it comes to um, uh, default modeling and uh, um, estimation of uh, loss given defaults. So um, uh, essentially, um, the areas of research uh, pertain, uh, say, the uh, risk analytics we are we are building, and because we want to uh, to be thought leaders in this market, we want to show our customers that we are not only followers. But we um, uh, we build right solutions, and uh, um, because we have the right expertise, and we also uh, do the right research, and uh, um, based on what we are um, um, developing. So that's more, more or less, I mean, like what what we are uh, doing as Bloomberg, and also I'm very much, you know, uh, intrigued by what what's, what's going to happen regarding LIBOR, and personally because I'm an interested quant, as I said before. And or I feel like uh, like one, even though you know I, I focus on on everything from from pricing data to regulation, XVA as well. Um, but uh, I feel that this LIBOR uh, replacement will offer plenty of opportunities for new modeling challenges, but also for building new analytics. And I think uh, you know Bloomberg as a vendor and uh, and as a, a you know a provider of solutions in this space can uh, can definitely uh, play an active role. Um, as a thought leader, but also as a, as, a, um, as a solution provider. Well,
0: and I hope to see the results of those uh, of that research in Risk sometime soon. Uh, I'd like to conclude mentioning <laughs> uh, um, that Risk will be hosting Quant Summit Europe next week, uh, which is the only Quant Finance Conference we, we have in Europe. And I know you're going to be there, uh, so I'm glad you're going you're gonna to make it. Uh, what are you looking forward to here uh, at the conference? Is there anything in particular
1: yes uh yes i'm going to be there like i um, will uh, be happy to uh, to meet you there mauro and uh, yes so it's uh, um, all the new like uh, um, um advances on um, xca essentially so especially regarding um, um, the modeling of uh, future initial margins which is really important for uh, the mba calculations so these uh, like uh, uh, funding costs uh, due to um, uh, initial margin posting. And this is very challenging because you need to calculate initial margin in the future as well. And so uh, that's why a lot of research um, uh, from academics and, uh, you know, uh, practitioners, even vendors went into that that area because that, that can be very, very, very challenging. So I'd be happy to hear, you know, what uh, my peers in industry and
0: academics are actually proposing about that. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Looking forward to that, too. Well, this ends uh, this podcast. Thank thank you very much again, Fabio, for talking to us. I'm glad jet lag didn't bother you at all. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye bye.